Hey, welcome to the Obio podcast. My name is Sofia Sanchez, a bio developer in the making, and today we will be hearing from Christopher Reynolds, the founder and CEO of Eden Bio. Eden Bio is what I like to call a tech bio startup, which means that they're using machine learning in order to optimize the creation of organisms for precision fermentation. To put that in other words, it, they're using machine learning to help other companies genetically tweak organisms that can give us products such as dairy, biomaterials, pharmaceutical agents, and so on. So really the problem they're seeing is scaling up these kinds of companies. You know, they need higher yields. And sometimes the approach they try can be either directed evolution, which is just like, you know, letting the organism kind of evolve uh, in a faster than normal way, or having scientists try many different um, kind of, I guess, genetic sequences, but that's very inefficient. So they actually use machine learning to optimize that process. In this episode, I ask Christopher also about his previous experiences, which include a PhD in bioinformatics, as well as working for different companies in the tech bio and biopharmaceutical space. He is also very, you know, technical in the building space. So I ask him about that. Interestingly, we also touch on the 2008 financial crisis and how, you know, maybe some of the learnings that Christopher got from there and is applying to the current situation. So I really think this is going to be a very informative episode for both biotech founders or people in biotech um, who want to start a biotech startup or just curious people out there who want to learn more about companies building, growing actually the future. Let's get started. Hey, Christopher, thank you so much for coming to the Obio podcast. I would like to start by asking you, you know, we met at Symbio Beta and I wonder what was the highlight there for you? What was, you know, the part you enjoyed the most or if there were any exciting outcomes for Eden Bio? Well, the conference was a great place to be and just connect with everyone else in the space because we're still at, still at such an early space that it's very useful to know what is being worked on by different people. So some good outcomes from the conference was that we were connected with several investors. So the sort of investors who would come on at a Series A. So what I'm very interested in doing at the moment is warming up a lot of investors, showing them what we're doing so we have people so we're not just going out into Series A cold. And the other useful thing coming out of that conference was meeting potential customers, getting the contacts. And I think that was just really the purpose of going out to Symbio Beta in the first place, just to be able to get those connections there. Yeah, for sure. I guess that's the great thing about these serendipitous environments. And in the case of pitching to investors, I wonder if there are any insights that you have from that experience that you'd like to share with, with biotech founders, I guess, who are in earlier stages. Um, well, my experience of pitching is one that's come along over more than two years now because raising seed and series A for better dairy and now raising seed for um, Eden Bio. There's a lot of things that go into just 
perfecting that's the pitch. And I think the key thing is that the pitch is always a work in progress. So you come up with something and then you need to just be very receptive to feedback and just even be able to read how the pitch is going as you're doing it over multiple pitches and then adjust in subsequent pitches and just come back after every pitch and say, okay, what went down very well? How can I just keep doing that and emphasize it? What went badly and how can I just prevent that from next time? And what were the areas of confusion and how can I prevent that confusion and just make it flow and be as clear as possible? Because that's generally what you're trying to do. Just communicate your ideas to the investors and if the more they understand it, the more willing they will be to engage with you. Mm, gotcha. It's kind of iterating and evolving like biology does, right? Yeah. <laughs> iterating. And also, as well as pitches, there will also be various presentations. So there's pitches to investors, but also introducing your company to potential partners, introducing what your company does to potential customers, giving presentations of what your company has achieved at scientific conferences. These are all different types of pitching, but they're all intrinsically linked. So it's almost like you have a master pitch and then you can um, take it and mold it to the specific situation. So I build up a library of different pitches that I can do. And each new pitch, I generally find that I need to practice each one five times going through it from beginning to end. Once you've done it five times, then it's safe enough to just go into a meeting and just <laughs> be confident enough that you won't just freeze up or in the middle of that. Right. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that, how you um, maybe specify each pitch according to the the audience right maybe with the founders i guess you could be a little bit more technical they're going to ask about well how does this help us whereas with investors we uh well you may like talk more about the market right so that's very interesting to know yeah yeah so everyone's got their own spheres of knowledge and everybody's got their own spheres of interest so right. both of those you have to try and allow for before you go into it so that's just understanding your audience and preparing specifically to your audience right. and yeah it's not always possible because there's um can be multiple different audiences especially when you're going into a conference but that's all a matter of preparing and just deciding who do i particularly want to reach out to mm -hmm. who do i really want to aim this to do i want to go half take a middle ground or just solidly aim at only the people I need to understand it. And it's all just a matter of planning and preparation. And also I'm very lucky in having a great VP of operations and communications. Her name is Rachel Shaw and I hired her from Cancer Research UK when she used to do stakeholder management and fundraising. It's the UK, UK it's the world's largest cancer charity. So She's got a lot of experience in this and I can bounce off ideas with her and we can mm. plan together just how we're going to configure each pitch. 
Now, going back in time to your previous experiences, and you certainly have many, could you tell us a little bit about Equinox Pharma? Yeah, so that's going back, oh, about 15 years now, but that was the company that was created by my PhD supervisors to spin off the technology I was working in. Mm -hmm. So when I joined Imperial College to do a PhD, it was part of a grant provided by Equinox Pharma to bring me on. So the idea was that I'd do a PhD, but also the work I was doing on machine learning for drug design would also be IP for the company. But when I arrived in 2008, that was the financial crash. So I arrived to join Equinox Pharma, which had just been set up quite recently, but that coincided with almost everybody from Equinox Pharma being laid off. So within a couple of months, I was literally the only employee and I didn't have an office. It was just me in my PhD supervisor's lab and ostensibly me and my professors were the company, but we didn't. It was just like I was doing a normal PhD. But I did get to do some contract work for various multinationals. And yeah, I built software for that. I learned how to use machine learning tools and I had the experience of traveling to various companies, even in Japan, just to pitch to them. Or rather, my professors did most of the pitching, but I was in the room and I could answer questions about the technology. So it was a trial by fire of what the startup world is like, but it was with training wheels because I was doing a PhD at the same time and there was no, the money had all been put aside. So whatever happens, I'm doing the PhD, doing the programming and any work that I can actually do that has business value was a bonus to that. So it essentially wound up after I left my PhD, but it was an interesting experience of what the startup world is like, the difficulties of getting customers what the customers want, and just learning what the environment is like. That is so interesting because you're right. Not only did you work at a biotech company while doing a PhD, but also during a hard economic time. And so I have actually been reading about how to prepare your biotech startup for the upcoming recession. And I wonder what learnings you got from the previous time, I guess, that you'd like to share with us and that you are potentially already applying to to your company. That's very relevant because we're just in a recession right now. So there's always cycles of bull markets and bear markets. Last year was a fantastic period for raising. And then the years before that with COVID were a bad period for raising. But there's always different ways you can just pitch it towards the market. I think the first thing is you want to be trying raising when there's the most interest. So right now, because we started raising just as we were going into a bear market, and a lot of our thoughts were we've got to raise quickly and we've got to raise a reasonable amount in order to last us out through the recession. So I'm expecting the recession to 
be over within a couple of years. So that's what our runway needs to be. And then as part of that, as we're going into recession, don't, the idea was let's not try and raise a really big amount. Let's try and keep it conservative so that the investors won't get spooked and that they'll come in and we can get a reasonable amount. So it's all about thinking about the market, just what you can, um, what sort of amounts are appropriate to that market and so on. Because I do have a lot of connections with various other startups. And I think that's one of the key things that's very helpful when you're raising to understand the market, what other people are raising, what their difficulties are and so on. Because other people in this market, I've heard stories that their term sheets were getting pulled, term sheets were getting um, suddenly adjusted. Yeah, and people just going in asking for huge asks, which were being given to them last year, just aren't making any headway this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting because I, in one of these essays that I was reading on biotech companies in recessions or in hard economic times, something that came up was how how biopharma can suffer a little bit less than other sectors because they're still developing drugs and so on. But I guess that that is a bit different for biotech startups, especially if you're raising money and you know you you need it to to basically keep on surviving and I guess you also have to make some adjustments to your valuation. Yeah, the value valuation is essentially a market value. Mm-hmm. So at this stage, because we're a startup, the valuation is just based on what the market will pay for it. So it's just a negotiation with the investors. And if it was a better market, then there would have been more investor interest and you can then just push up your valuation more. So, but at this stage, as an early startup, that's essentially a meaningless value. (laughs) And it's only at later stages um, that you actually have clear finances saying what you're going to be raising, projections that that proper valuation can be based off. And at the moment, you can, we can do all the financial stuff, the projections saying how much we expect to be raising a few years but I think all of the investors know that this is too early for those to be real numbers and you can also just spook investors if they see you're predicting too big um, values in a few years and then they say no we don't trust these guys let's pull out gotcha now moving on to happier scenes I want to discuss about Better Dairy, your previous startup, you were using precision fermentation to produce dairy products, right? Like using organisms to produce this compound that is chemically similar to what we see in nature. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah. So this is a whole, the whole process of precision fermentation. So it's a growing industry and it's been used in pharma since the 1980s when they, they've started making insulin in this way, and they've been producing that ever since. There's now over 170 different biopharma drugs which are produced 
by precision fermentation and worth on average a billion dollars each. And then there's other markets that are coming in now. Um, the food market, cosmetics, even materials like spider silk. And they're all based on the same basic principle that you can take a microorganism. So yeast is one. Um, trichoderma is another. Aspergillus is a third. These are fungi. And there's also bacteria like E. coli. And then even human cells like Chinese hamster ovary cells are uh, common mammal cells that are used to simulate human human cells, so um, high eukaryotes, prokaryotes, and they all have their different pros and cons. And you can take these cells, engineering a gene, and then the gene will be translated in and made into a protein, and then you can extract that protein by lysing the cell or just even engineer it to come out through the secretory pathway. So precision fermentation, I would say it's harnessing the natural protein production process for high-scale protein production. Okay. So the idea is you can get molecularly identical proteins just produced through cells. The magic of reverse engineering biology, right? Um, now I want to ask you in terms of intellectual property, how you took a different approach to companies that are also in the lab-grown dairy space. One thing we've been saying right along is that a key USP is machine learning. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge problem with yield. It's not the problem as big a problem with cellular agriculture is how do you get all those cells to grow up? But even so, just getting a cell to produce a protein it doesn't naturally produce runs into all sorts of problems where there's interference within the cell's secretory pathway, aggregation of different proteins. So there's a very complex engineering process. And the way it's traditionally done is that you give the strain to a scientist and they'll go away read what's worked in the past try that out what worked for similar proteins and then proceed by trial and error we're using machine learning tools in order to guide that process and push down the r d times the number of iterations of the design build test cycle and the costs involved and we believe that by doing this we can produce better precision fermentation organisms faster and cheaper than our competitors. Okay, that's it for Eden Bio, which I'm going to get back to later. But I wonder in the case of Better Dairy, where there are other companies like Perfect Day, which you know have patents on these technologies. And maybe um, my question is not directed specifically to to lab-grown dairy, but generally when in the in biotech we have companies with patents, how do you get into the game basically um, with a different approach? Yeah, so Perfect Day was the first mover in the um, dairy space and second mover was Formo in Germany, previously called Legendary, and 
Um, Better Dairy was part of a wave of um, companies like New Culture was another one that were coming in as a third movers in the space. And when I, even before Better Dairy, when I joined the Entrepreneur First Startup Accelerator, my goal was to combine machine learning with synthetic biology. And I was looking for some go-to-market for that. And then at Entrepreneur First, um, my co-founder was very interested in the dairy space. So the initial pitch of Better Dairy was building the future of food, starting with dairy, with a machine learning approach as our USP. Um, so that's the same approach that I want to take to Eden Bio and roll out as a platform technology to all sorts of different proteins. Mm, that makes sense how, yeah, machine learning is your USB and then that inspired in Eden Bio. And uh, now I also read on your website, on the Eden Bio website, what you just told me about how you're outsmarting both directed evolution and scientists trying different genetic tweaks to through trial and error. So I wonder, how does it look like to do all these iterations in silico and then going in vivo to try them out? Yeah, so there's been some huge advances in machine learning and its application to synthetic biology just in the past few years. We're not even we're only two years since AlphaFold just made a huge advance in predicting protein structure. And there's a huge application of what's called deep learning to various aspects. You've seen those um, language applications and the dolly where it can just construct pictures from various inputs. And that's all done by deep learning. And there's not actually enough data to do proper deep learning yet, because you need thousands of inputs, but that there are linear machine learning methods which work with less data that we can use even before we have that much data. So the idea is to just use the appropriate machine learning methods to the amount of data. And what we do is we have a design-build test loop. So using the machine learning, building the con constructs that we predict, then testing them out. And then we have a cycle where we put the data from the tests back into the machine learning model. And the first iteration might, might not be very good, but you very rapidly just iterate through the search space. So design of experiment is a similar idea, but just machine learning is just an taking that same idea of just building a map of the search space and using more advanced methods because design of experiment is basically just a very simple statistical um, regression techniques and linear machine learning tools are just more and more advanced and complex regression techniques. And then when you get to deep learning, it's still essentially at its heart a regression technique, but it's using le multiple layers of neural networks to allow links to be produced at ever further distances. 
Okay, okay, thank you. That answers my question on whether you were doing the iterations in silico or in vitro and yeah, at the design build test cycle. Now, I'm a little bit curious to know what you think about other companies such as Ginkgo, you know, who are also optimizing this this process of genetic engineering. Any thoughts on what they're building? Uh, yeah, well, Ginkgo is the huge monolith in this space. And yeah, Ginkgo is an inspiration to every company that yeah. um, it comes out in the space. We all want to be a Ginkgo. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they've obviously got um, areas in just research going in just about every space. So there's often talks talked about a rock, paper, scissors model of startups, mid-sized com companies, and giant companies. And Ginkgo, in this case, is like the paper. They're like covering everything. And what you a startup needs to do is be the scissors and come along and snip out a tiny bit of that paper, a niche that they can go into and excel in and then expand outwards from that. And the rock in these cases are the mid-sized companies which can blunt the scissors either by taking their and duplicating their capabilities or just acquiring them. And then with Ginkgo, who are the big giant-sized companies, their papers, so they can wrap up the rocks by acquiring them. So it's all an ecosystem in a way, and you need to find your place in the ecosystem because what you don't want to be going into is just saying, okay, we want to do exactly what Ginkgo is doing and try and beat them when they have billions in resources. Um, that's not something you're going to do. You need to find something that is not being looked at in much detail and then really push forward with that. That's such a cool way to see it, the rock, paper, scissors framework or mental model for the biotech startup environment. I will definitely keep it in mind. And um, you also mentioned this, this challenge of getting data for deep learning or even machine learning and in biotechnology. I wonder if this is a challenge for Eden Bio, and if so, how are you trying to overcome it? Yeah, it's, it's the key challenge, generating the data. Once you have the data, machine learning is just a process that takes data and gives you an output. Yeah. And the machine learning output is only as good as the data you put into it. Garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> so the key part of the workflow is getting a workflow that gathers a lot of data and data that is sufficiently precise to be able to build predictions from. Because if you had just absolutely perfect data, then you could make perfect predictions from it. But you're never going to have perfect data. So the fuzzier your data, the more of the data you need in order to produce good predictions. So with biology, 
you're getting very fuzzy data anyway because biology is unpredictable. And then what you need to do is say, how can we minimize the variation in the biology? How do we minimize clonal variation, experimental variation, measurement variation? And then how do we do enough of those experiments that we can compensate for the amount of variation that we still have after all of that? So we're working very hard in building a workflow where we can do high throughput hundreds or thousands of experiments in order to generate the data we need. So the building and testing phases are key things where the latest technologies that have been developed for high throughput will allow us to do the number of builds and tests to generate the data we need. Okay, so you're right now generating your own data and also, I guess, through customers' data, which kind of allows you to, you know, continue iterating? Yeah, I can't talk too much about this, but the uh, key, we're looking very intently at um, generating as much data of our own as possible, but also various partnerships in order to use data that's already out there. Okay, awesome, awesome. Um, yeah, so another thing actually in the same realm of both precision fermentation and um, cellular agriculture is scaling up, right? And I guess your Eden Bio is one of these companies uh, which is has like a B2B model and kind of helps other companies um, in the space scale up. So do you have any... Do, do you think basically that this will be possible in a 10-year time frame span, you know, um, to have these sorts of products in supermarkets around the world? I don't know. How do you think about that? It very much depends on how much you need to scale and what you need, the amounts you need at the other end, um, just of the product. Because the different products will all have different levels of production, which will enable commercializability. And yeah, the elephant in the room with scale up is that things that work in the lab may not work at high scale. So you can do a lot of work in the lab, you scale it up and it doesn't work. So we're trying to minimize that by simulating high scale just right at the lab stage. Mm. But then thinking, mm, down the line for scale-up, it all depends on the product. So for therapeutics, because they're such high value, you don't need much scale-up. Um, um, yeah, the scale-up um, is a relatively simple process um, because you don't need masses of the product out in order to get a commercializable return because they're so valuable. Yes. The cheaper the product, so something like um, whey, um, dairy protein, that's incredibly cheap. So then you need uh, not only a big scale-up effort, because the bigger scale you have, you get economies of scale, you also need a really good scaling microorganism that's producing a lot of your product and will still be producing a lot of the product at high scale. And that's so where Eden that Bio comes in. Yeah, exactly. So yield is the key problem just 
in every um, stage of precision fermentation. So that's where we're positioning ourselves at the beginning of the value chain, where we create the strains that can then be scaled up. So we intend to leave the scale up to other companies and then take royalties from that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned also biology's unpredictability, I guess. Um, the promise somehow that I at least have been told of synthetic biology and genetic engineering is making biology more predictable, more programmable, more, I guess, easier to engineer. But uh, we still have, I guess, this feature too, as, as a key defining feature of biology. Do you think that with all these technologies, you know, automation and machine learning, one day we could actually be objectively able to say that biology is predictable? I think we will. So when I started in the bioinformatics world in 2008, um, a key problem was just predicting protein structure. And it was almost almost like we know this should be predictable because the proteins will always form into the same, um, same structure and they will do that even in the absence of cells usually. So biology should be predictable, but it isn't because we can't do the predictions well enough. Mm -hmm. And when AlphaFold just cracked the structure prediction problem, And when I say cracked, it still hasn't been perfected, but AlphaFold is just a vast leap over any previous predictions, and it predicts a lot of structures accurately, or even most structures. And then um, you've got the structure prediction that people didn't think we were going to be able to achieve for decades if they even thought we could predict it at all. So I think there'll be similar leaps for various other parts of biology. It's just that there's more complexity in various parts of the cell. So with predicting structure, you're just predicting folds um, and secondary structure and tertiary structure. But with how predicting how a protein is expressed in a cell and then how it moves through the secretory pathway and then is secreted out of the cell. There's a whole like conveyor belt of interactions with all different parts of the cells that all need to be considered. So I think in the future, we will have enough data to be able to predict every step of that and be able to be accurate about our predictions. It's just there's still a lot of data that needs to be collected. Mm. Now, as a, as a bioinformatician, You, well, you didn't quite start with bioinformatics, right? You did your bachelor's in natural science. Yeah, my bachelor's was 2001 to 2005, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but and na natural sciences was something that I was very interested in, getting a holistic view of biology. So I specialized mainly in biology and chemistry at that point. But computation was something that I did informally. Mm. So at that stage, machine learning was in a very young, young part of phase of its development. So I don't know if I'd even have done much machine learning if I had done computation at that stage. But 
I had informal knowledge of computing, which enabled me to do a master's in bioinformatics and then go to Imperial College to do a PhD in bioinformatics, which had machine learning at its center. Just generally, is there any piece of advice you would give to people who, like you, started in the natural sciences, but maybe do not have even like a notion of computation? I think computation is one of the key skills that should be taught to all, pe all people to some degree as part of a curriculum. So it's less scary than it first appears, and it's incredibly powerful and useful once you've got the basics. So I would recommend just taking a course in some basic computational programming. Python is a relatively standard one for the bioinformatics world now. In fact, it seems to be have pushed out all the others, including the ones that I was taught even when I did bioinformatics just 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend just taking a beginner's course in Python, getting to understand how you use libraries and perform basic operations on text files. Yeah. Um, online courses, night courses, and you don't even need to put a lot of effort in to get some big results out. Okay, I am sure that some people will appreciate that that piece of advice. And then, what's been the hardest part of being a biotech founder? I suppose it's the business aspects of it, and the business aspects are something you've really got to learn on the job, as it were. Because you can do MBAs and get the, get the basics, but there's so many details and things you have to learn by doing that you need to actually be in business in order to have a grasp on. And this is something that, as a scientist, you're not going to have when you go into business. And it can be learned, um, and just going straight from science to business. But it's very important, I think, at an early stage to have the support of an accelerator or a co-founder who does understand this, because otherwise you're going, just going to be totally lost doing science and business at the same time as your, your first business. And it's only now that in my second business, where I've had a couple of years of experience, that I can say, okay, I've now got the business experience in order to do the fundraising, the financial projections, the legal admin that needs to be done, and also oversee the scientific roadmap that also needs to be built out at the same time. So a lot of it is experience. And then once you have the experience, it's planning and getting the right people around you who have complementary skills to you in order to be able to take over what you don't have the skills yet to do. Talking about business and co-founders, they, well, I've generally heard that uh, CEOs, you know, have this vision of where the company is leading, the business side, and then CTOs are, you know, all in on, on the technical side. Since you are, well, you, you have the technical background, what made you decide to be the CEO? Yeah, so I was CTO at Better Dairy, and now I'm CEO 
of my own company and there is um there's nobody at a cto level yet but i want to be directing the vision so i think that's the key um key difference that i had a vision but as cto at better dairy i wasn't able to realize that vision i was realizing somebody else's vision and that it didn't always agree with what my vision was but now i have a clear vision that i can just carry out in my own company all right makes sense well i'm very very excited about what eden bio is doing and thank you very much chris for for sharing your knowledge here the last question i would like to ask you is is there any uh, general piece of advice that you would give to future biotech founders you know they may be phd students or undergraduates um to yeah just start their biotech startups I suppose my main piece of advice would just be encouragement. Just take the leap, seize the day, and just go into business. Take a chance. And it is a risk because you can form a company and it can fail. You may not form a company. And there's so many obstacles along the way. But all of these obstacles are training. So... If you stumble and fall, you will be able to try again and this time be able to have the knowledge to avoid those or overcome those in some way. So I think you're never going to be in a position where you say, now I have all of the business knowledge to build a billion-dollar startup. You're always going to be, I have the scientific knowledge and I have a vision for a billion-dollar startup. I need to take the chance and start going into the race. Awesome. Well, thanks again and best of luck to Eden Bio. Thank you, Sophia. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Obio podcast. Remember that you can find me on Twitter at Sophia's Bio to get the latest updates on genetic engineering, synthetic biology, tech bio, computational biology, and more. See you.